This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by Safety Focus, ASSP's premier hybrid education event. Join us for Safety Focus September 18th through the 22nd in Arlington, Virginia, and online to gain in-depth training on important safety topics and collaborate with expert instructors and fellow safety professionals. Learn more and register at safetyfocus.assp.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Thank you so much for joining us today, where we are going to be talking about fall protection and steps you can take to improve your fall protection program, specifically as it relates to the recently updated ANSI ASSP Z359.2 standard, which establishes minimum requirements for a comprehensive managed fall protection program. Joining me today is the chair of the Z359.2 subcommittee that put the standard together. I'm uh, happy to welcome back to the show, Kevin Dennis. Kevin, uh, great to have you. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. Always happy to, to talk about the standard. Excited to talk to you. It's always uh, exciting when uh, we have a, a, you know, a newer and updated standard to talk about and touch on uh, the latest best practices. So let's dive in. So I, I thought we could kind of start by uh, giving folks an overview of Z359.2, particularly uh, as it pertains to you know, the, the major changes in this most recent update of the standard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll probably handle that question in two parts is the, the editorial changes and then some of the content changes. So the first change that the reader will realize and notice or there's a lot of editorial changes to the document. Uh, we moved away from the standard two-column format to a standard single page, and this makes the document much more readable on mobile devices and tablets. Uh, so that's probably the biggest physical change that people will notice. Uh, illustrations in the back of the standard uh, have moved to inside of the document where they occur in the text, and all of the sections uh, have been reviewed and reorganized uh, removing repetition of the content, there was a significant amount of, of duplicated uh, and to some degree unnecessary content where the subcommittee felt we could say the same thing with less words and reorganize the document. So we reduced the document from 57 down to 31 pages, which makes the document much easier to, to navigate and understand. So second part of my answer is the, is the content changes. Uh, and I would encourage listeners, if they're involved in fall protection with their employer or their fall protection program, I'd certainly uh, tell them to go and get the 2023 version of this standard as I won't be able to provide an in-depth review of all of the changes here. But there, there's five changes that I'd probably like to review. Uh, the first is in, in the hierarchy of controls. In the 2017 version of the standard, this section was really just an illustration and a, and a bunch of uh, explanation content. So this area was flushed out. So there's more succinct language that provides direction and requires employers to make use of the hierarchy of controls. You know, take steps to eliminate the fall hazard uh, and build in and design passive control measures before automatically defaulting to the less desirable active PPE controls of, of travel restraint and, and fall arrest. 
So that whole section has, has got a little more organization to it. There's a little bit more uh, direction for employers. Second section or second change is before use and periodic inspections were defined and the requirements were written around them. Uh, these two categories of PPE inspection have always been in the standard, but there wasn't an adequate definition of what the differences were. The roles and responsibilities of people within your fault protection program, it wasn't identified who would do these inspections. So these before use and periodic inspections were defined and the requirements were written around them. Uh, uh, so these, that whole area or that whole arena, if you will, of inspections has been flushed out. Uh, another change is the removal of rope access content. Since Z459 was released, the rope access content requirements that was in point two have been removed. So the content isn't duplicated and we don't have confusion and conflicts between two standards of having, having requirements for rope access and two different standards. So that section, that entire content has been removed and, and moved over to Z459. The fourth change is the training section. Uh, this is important to many people in fall protection as it identifies the training requirements for each category of, of person. In the 2017 version of the standard, each category of person, authorized, competent, qualified trainer, rescuer, and program administrator, they all had their own specific section. And the training requirements for each was duplicated in each of these sections. And it was difficult for the reader to navigate and understand the subtle differences of the training requirements because so much of the content was repetitive. So what the subcommittee did was we rewrote this entire section in such a manner that the reader can understand the progressive nature of fall protection training. Instead of each role having their own section, it's written where the training content for everybody is in one section. So everybody has this basic foundational level of fall protection training. And then the specific needs of each role is broken out. So for example, all people in the fall protection program must be trained on the fall hazards encountered at the work site, but only a qualified person must be trained on, you know, certifying anchors. So the unique training requirements for each role are detailed rather than repeating the entire content for each section, which again, makes the document much easier to, to navigate and understand. And then the fifth and last change that I'd want to mention is changes to the qualified person requirements. There were two requirements of a qualified person in the standard that really didn't reflect current practice or really didn't improve a fall protection program. And those two requirements were the first one was having a qualified person meet the same requirements of a competent person. And then secondly, requiring a qualified person to participate in all incident investigations. Both of those requirements were removed uh, due to comments by the, by, the, by the industry. Is the role of a qualified person within an organization can be quite varied. An organization may have, you know, a half dozen qualified people, each with their own specific subject matter expertise. So for the standard to have a blanket statement that says all qualified people must meet the same requirements as a competent per person was quite uh, onerous or limiting for many organizations. And in the same vein, having a qualified person participate in all incident investigations also didn't really work. Some incidents might be a purchasing problem. Some incidents might be inspection issue. 
So the program was rewritten to remove those two requirements, but the standard still provides employers with the ability to require that of their qualified people. But the program administrator and the training needs assessment now have choices. It's they they will determine it rather than the the standard requiring it for all. So again, several changes, new look, new field in the entire document. Again, I can't give an exhaustive summary of each of these here in the podcast, but I encourage everybody to get a copy of it if you're involved in it. Absolutely, definitely, and I encourage folks to take a look. Now, you uh, you talked about uh, a few of them there. But I wonder if we kind of take a closer look at the different sections of the standard. I know there's a lot of content there, but I wonder if we can kind of briefly talk through the, the different sections of the standard and you know the, the role each of those plays in developing an effective fall protection program. Oh, boy, uh, that's a big ask. I'm giving all these really long answers. There's 11 sections in the standard, <laughs> but, uh, but it's a great question. I'll, I'll give a little summary of each. Uh, and maybe I would just start with what's the purpose of the standard? What's the objective or what's the intent of this entire standard? So any employer that has people who work up at height, anybody who's exposed to falls from elevation, this standard is a great standard to follow because it, it provides direction for an employer to identify the fall hazards, develop control methods, and then train people accordingly. And then, and then it's a living document, so you can keep reviewing that. So that's the intent of it is obviously that we give employers the ability to protect their workers at heights by managing their program, identify the fall hazards, develop adequate control methods, and then implement that program of, of training, equipment purchases, PPE, et cetera, et cetera. So within this standard, there's 11 sections. I'll just kind of give the title and purpose of each the first section, sections one and two, I'll put together is that's the scope, purpose, exceptions, and interpretations of the document, as well as the definitions. Section three is the starting point for the employer. It, it says, here's all of the things that an employer has to do to comply with the standard. So it's kind of your roadmap. Section four are employer responsibilities. And in this section, this is where it identifies who is an authorized person, who is a competent, who's qualified, program administrator, and it lists out the responsibilities of those, of those people. Section five is training and evaluation. So once you have identified your people, section five shows you how to train those people according to your, to your site. Section six is the fall hazard survey, identification of fall hazards and data collection on those fall hazards, if you will. Section seven is uh, eliminating and controlling fall hazards. So that's where you'll find the solutions and the hierarchy and the direction for employers how to, how to mitigate the, the, or, or, or control or reduce the risk of fall hazards. And then section eight is minimum requirements for procedures. Uh, and it's kind of married to the training in section five is you develop the procedure, but then the training is what you train people on those procedures. And then sections 9, 10, and 11 are kind of program management elements. In section 9, you have direction for inspections, storage and maintenance of equipment, anchorage identification, and certification. Section 10 is, is incident investigations, and section 11 is evaluating program effectiveness. So again, I apologize for the long answer, but most employers have got some 
level or form of fall protection program already in place. People are working up at heights, there's equipment and there's basic procedures. So most people use this standard to run a little gap analysis on their program and identify areas that they can approve. And it's a great standard to do that. Diving a little deeper into a few of those, I'm curious to talk a little bit about training and evaluation as well as conducting a fall hazard survey, because I know that, you know, that kind of sets the stage for developing your program and, and addressing those fall hazards moving forward. Of course. Uh, for me, Section 6, the fall hazard survey is the most important section in the standard. This section requires the employer to get an education and collect data on each and every fall hazard that people will encounter to find out, you know, information like how often is that hazard encountered? Uh, what's the duration of exposure for each employee? Where's the physical location? Is it, is it a building that's owned by the employer or is it a, a third party's building or facility where the employer might not have the same amount of authority to make anchorages or make changes with the work? Are there any conditions that make the risks higher or lower? Uh, noise, additional workers, slippery surfaces. Uh, is there a rescue plan that's going to be effective? And the reason I believe that this education or this data collection is the most important is when an employer does a fall hazard survey and they take all of that information in, the, in its entirety, that information sets up all of the other sections of the fall protection program. A really good survey, a really good knowledge of what uh, an employer's staff does uh, when they're up at height, it identifies and usually tells an employer very clearly what equipment is needed, uh, what training requirements are, how many authorized people they are physically, where are they, how many competent people are needed as resources or that supervisory level to support that authorized person group. Do we need qualified person expertise? And if we do, you know, is that in-house or is it external? So, it's kind of the old adage of good information in has good good results out. You know, if we if people just go, hey, we have workers up at height, get them a harness and a lanyard, there's going to be gaps, you know, in anchored selection, training, and that's what the standard is trying to to prevent. So the survey is basically a listing of all the fall hazards. Uh, and it sets up the training needs assessment. The training needs assessment is really an extension of the survey to further identify what equipment is being used to that authorized person and train them accordingly. And training must include, as part of the standard, experiential exercises. So fall protection training must include physical hands-on activities where the authorized person has the opportunity to, to touch the equipment, to wear the equipment, to carry it, to feel how it's used and, and connect every single piece together and understand fall distances and clearance estimates. They have to have that opportunity to use every piece of equipment according to the procedure and the needs of, needs of the work. It sounds onerous, but... If you do a good job of section six and in the survey, everything else kind of falls into place once people start breaking it down and, and seeing what it entails. And it's important to note that the standard doesn't require any training or any equipment or anything in excess that isn't revealed in the survey. So the standard only requires people to identify hazards that, that they have, develop control methods according to those local hazards, and then train the people accordingly. So the standard works for any organization, even if it was a, 
if it's a small, you know, subcontracting company in the, in the construction industry, it works for a group of six as well as it does for a group of 6,000. So I can't stress how important that section six of that fall hazard is, is that's the genesis of the entire program. Taking the next step from that assessment earlier, you talked about, you know, using the fall protection or hierarchy of controls. Once you've done that assessment, you kind of have an idea of the fall hazards you're dealing with. How do you use the fall protection hierarchy of controls, you know, eliminate or control the fall hazards you've identified? Yeah, absolutely. The nice thing about the fall hazard hierarchy of controls is that it's universally applicable. You know, uh, and what I mean by that is it's a process. It isn't a piece of equipment or a specific work practice. It's a methodical process that an employer can look at a fall hazard and systematically work through the hierarchy of controls. And if they do a good job on the survey and they know how the frequency, duration, exposure, physically where those, those fall hazards are, the right solution usually appears quite easily. Many times the problem with, the, with fall protection is people automatically default to harness-based systems where they go, oh, somebody's up in the air, get them a harness and tie them off when they're above, you know, the trigger height, four feet, six feet, 10 feet, whatever it is, according to the jurisdiction. So the hierarchy of controls empowers an employer to slow down a little bit, look at that fall hazard and ask themselves, is there any creative way that we can eliminate this job? Is there any way we can accomplish the same task without having uh, a person up at height? And that's always the best solution. So the hierarchy of fall hazard controls, you know, follows the general hierarchy of safety controls. It's just been tweaked a little bit for, for fall hazards. So in a perfect world, there wouldn't be any exposure to fall hazards and all fall hazards would be eliminated, but, you know, buildings would be designed with passive controls or better yet, you know, uh, they'd be designed where the fall hazards didn't exist, but we know that we're not there yet. Uh, we have legacy buildings and structures and work practices where it isn't possible to eliminate exposure to fall hazards. But however, there are several situations where we can, and that's the intent of the standard and the hierarchy of controls. If we can have project planners, architects, engineers working at the design stage to relocate equipment, put up parapets, guardrails, and ask people in the trades doing the work, is there another way to do this work that would prevent your exposure to the fall? So many times you'd be surprised by the answer. Uh, little changes in the order of the work, uh, maybe a different process or equipment, uh, many times can eliminate the hazard. So that's what the hierarchy does, is it gives the employer the direction for every single fall hazard. Can you eliminate it? Can you use passive controls, handrails, guardrails, covers? walls, vertical netting, physical barriers. And if you can't do that, the next step is travel restraint or active or active systems, travel restraint, and then fall arrest. So depending on the needs of the work and the resources of the organization, information that's collected in the survey using the hierarchy of controls always puts the best foot forward in regards to protecting the people exposed to the fall hazard. Moving into the, those uh, last three sections of the standard you talk about, this is where, you know, kind of the, you know, the implementation, the management, the evaluation comes in, as well as incident investigations. So what, you kind of talk about, you know, the most important things, you know, for, for folks to remember about each of those pieces and how to effectively, you know, implement, manage and improve your program. 
Yeah, sure. So like you said, those sections are, are eight through 11. Section eight are procedures, actual written procedures for fall hazards that detail the control method, equipment, and steps taken to protect authorized people. Usually when I'm talking to people, they, they go, this is one of those sections that sounds really onerous. They go, boy, you want me to write down a procedure for work that a tradesperson has been doing for 15, 20 years. And procedures isn't so much a, a legalistic requirement, but it's basically the training curriculum you know, that the survey and needs assessment flushed out already. So chances are the procedures already established. The standard is really just trying to encourage employers to capture that, you know, new staff improvement points. That's really where the procedure comes in is it, it now captures a baseline of saying, Hey, this is how we do this work. And this is how we protect ourselves moving, moving forward. So that's in section eight. Uh, section nine is program implementation and management. There's general guidance in there for anchorage certification, the strengths for travel restraint, fall arrest, uh, rescue, and it mirrors pretty closely what's required by the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, as well as the other standards in the Fall Protection Code. And then there's direction in there on uh, before use and periodic inspections, maintenance, storage of, of equipment. And sections 10 is a requirement for the employer to investigate near misses and, and incidents. Uh, and then section 11 is evaluating program effectiveness. So every, you know, over a period of time, everybody's program evolves. Uh, there's turnover of staff, there's changes in regulations. Probably the biggest and the fastest change that occurs is innovation amongst fall protection equipment that's available. So section 11 is really just saying, hey, keep your fall protection program up to date. Go back and resurvey those fall hazards. Take a look at your training. Is it, is it being effective? Are there any improvements with equipment or industry work practices that we can look at a fall hazard and now maybe it's possible to put guarding around that fall hazards rather than using a travel restraint system? So the standard, once the program is established, really kind of turns into a living program that every couple of years it's being updated and refreshed and, and kept current. Any uh, final thoughts about uh, Z359.2 or uh, developing uh, an uh, effective fall protection program? It's a great standard if an employer has people up at heights. It provides direction, like I said, to identify control hazards and then train people accordingly. And, and it works, like I said, for small and large employers alike. So uh, it's, it's, it's a good standard. It's a, it's a standard that I enjoy working on. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you so much again for coming on, Kevin. Yeah, uh, appreciate you taking the time and you know, all the great work you and the subcommittee did on uh, developing uh, Z359.2. Thank you. As always, Scott, it's a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.